at least half of you guys. There we go. What an honor it is to be able to come back here to a place that has meant so much to me and my family and to join the, the illustrious cast of guest speakers you've had. Um, so glad I didn't come the week after Phil. Uh, <laughs> and I don't know the other guys, so I guess I'm okay. I'm sure he was great too. Um, it's been said, may you live in interesting times. And uh, I've heard that statement for many, many years, and I always took it as something positive, something desirable. I mean, we live in a world that is filled with wonder, and life is an adventure, and history is this exciting story, and we're all part of it. And I mean, who wants to live in uninteresting times, right? But I recently learned that this, is, uh, this phrase is actually uh, the English translation of an ancient Chinese curse. It is. Um, nobody knows who said it first, but the idea behind it is that interesting times are troubling times. Now, unless you've been living out in a cave or in the woods or in some other way off grid, you know that this year, 2020, would qualify as interesting times, right? I see no need to uh, tell you why it's been so interesting. I think it's pretty obvious. Um, what I do want to talk about this morning is what we're all looking for in the midst of it, namely answers. No matter the issue, and there are several, everyone wants to know a few things. Who's to blame? How can we get through? How can we manage in this time? How can we bring about real change in our world? Uh, how can we make sure this sort of thing never happens again? It's tempting to think of 2020 as some kind of anomaly as if everything was fine before and if we can just make it through to 2021 everything will be fine again but there's a bigger problem that runs deeper and is far more serious than the things that have happened to us in the last seven months or what may come upon us in the days and weeks ahead even if the problems of 2020 were to suddenly disappear overnight we would still be troubled something would still keep us up at night Something would still try to take the joy out of living, still cause us pain and suffering and disappointment, and we would still be looking for answers. Uh, there are many voices offering many solutions in many ways. Buy this product, follow this plan, take this medication, elect this candidate. Every day we're inundated with opinions and distractions and half-truths and even lies. These are mere band-aids quick fixes from institutions that see only the consequences of the bigger problem that goes deep down inside each one of us. What we need this morning is truth. Truth about the world. Truth about life. Truth about God. Truth about ourselves. We need it like a man three days in the desert needs water. What we want this morning is to be free, free from whatever troubles us, free from despair and anxiety, free from whatever it is in your life that you wish was different, free from the pressure of unrealistic expectations, free just to be honest about who we really are. We're desperate for freedom, like someone chained to a wall, 
or an addiction or a circumstance that just won't go away. This brings me to another quote. Unlike the first one, this one actually is a blessing, and we know who said it. It's recorded for us in John chapter 8, verses 31 to 32. Can't see that one. There we go. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you continue in my word, you really are my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And I suspect you've heard this before, right? That last part is often quoted, even by those who don't know who said it, as a good way to live. I mean, we teach our kids that honesty is the best policy. We teach them that it's harder to maintain a lie than it is to start with the truth in the first place. And we hope this will carry through into their adulthood and they will avoid trouble by living honestly in the belief that truth will prevail. Now, those are all great thoughts, but that has nothing to do with what Jesus was talking about here. I'd like to spend our time together this morning thinking about this statement from our Lord because I believe he addresses that bigger problem I mentioned earlier. I believe it holds the key to what each of us needs the most. I believe it is the answer to the question we should all be asking. And that question this morning is how can we, people who live in a fallen world, ever be right with God? Let that question seek in. If you're not asking that question, then I, then I want you to start, okay? So we're going to take a look at this uh, statement that Jesus made, one phrase at a time. He said, if you continue in my word. Simply stated, Jesus' word means, what, the things he was saying, the things he said publicly in his sermons, the things that he said to his disciples in private conversation, the answers to specific questions that were posed to him by the religious establishment, even the clashes that he had with those religious leaders. All that is written in the Bible, in red, if you have that version. Now, it's important to note that when Jesus spoke, the people who heard him recognized that he spoke with authority, unlike the religious leaders that they had been used to hearing. But it's even more important to note that Jesus claimed to speak only what he heard from his father. Everything he said carried the same weight as when God spoke to Abraham and Moses and the prophets, because the man Jesus literally was God in the flesh. His word was truth. His word was authority. His word was the answer to their deepest need, and it is the answer to our deepest need. His word is the way back to God. But in a deeper sense, Jesus' word points back to himself. John began his account of the gospel like this. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The word became flesh and took up residence with us. We observed his glory, the glory as, of, as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. No one has ever seen God, the one and only Son, the one who is at the Father's side. He has revealed him. You see, Jesus was not merely a great teacher um, <clears throat> pointing to a certain body of knowledge or uttering phrases that would one day look good on Christian greeting cards or, or even offering suggestions on how best to live. He was the embodiment of divine knowledge. He is the ultimate standard 
and the final authority on all that is good and everything that is right. So when we see the word word, we need to think of all that Jesus said and all that Jesus was and all that Jesus is. And when we look at that entire phrase, if you continue in my word, we shouldn't take that to mean that good Christians ought to read their Bibles every day. Now that's a great practice and I encourage you to do it. You really do need to read it, but that's, it's so much more than that. Continuing in his word means obeying his word. It means taking seriously everything that Jesus said. So when he said sin no more, what he meant was whenever you're tempted to do something that you know God doesn't want you to do, it's really complicated, don't do it. Or, if God makes it clear what he does want you to do, another complicated step, get on with it. When he said, love your enemy, that wasn't just a nice sentiment. He meant that the people who are called by his name really should show love to the unlikable people who don't deserve it, at least not in our eyes. When he said, love God with all your heart, with all your soul, mind, and strength, he meant that God must have first place in your life. He will not settle for whatever's left over after you've given love to your family, after you've given your dedication to your job, after you've given your time to the things that you like to do. No, he wants it all. He meant continuously living within the boundaries that he determined for a life that is pleasing and honoring to God. And if you do that, if you continue in my word, you really are my disciples. Now, Jesus' audience already, uh, they were familiar with the concept of discipleship. John the Baptist had disciples. The religious leaders had disciples. The prophets of old had disciples. A disciple was a student or an apprentice. But it involved more than the transfer of information or the acquisition of a particular skill. A disciple was in training to continue the work of the teacher. That meant there had to be a close association with the teacher. You see, there was a lot of instruction, a lot of practice that had to go on, a lot of correction. The students needed to observe the teacher in all sorts of situations so they could imitate what they saw the teacher doing. Eventually, they would speak and act so much like the teacher that there would be virtually no difference between the two. And when it was time for them to carry on the teacher's mission or the work, they would do it exactly like the teacher did it. They would become his representatives, repeating the same words, doing the same things, applying the same methods and principles, displaying the same character, intent on the same goal, doing for new disciples what the teacher had done for them. You see, this is what Jesus spent three years doing with the original 12. This is why he included them in his ministry. They had to hear him teach. They had to witness his miracles. They had to experience him caring for and loving the needy and the outcast. And when Jesus saw that they were ready, he sent them out to continue his work. Now, I know it's hard for us to think of ourselves living that kind of life, surrounded by the modern world and all that it is. 
I find that one of the greatest challenges to my own walk with the Lord is the 2,000 years that separate us from them. Uh, we don't get to experience Jesus like they did. We can't hear his voice. We can't witness his miracles. We can't feel his touch. We can't have a real two-way conversation and ask specific questions and expect a direct answer back. Now, I've met some Christians who speak as if they do, and I know that we have certain advantages. We have the completed Bible to read, and we have the Holy Spirit living inside us. But let's just be honest for a minute here. It's not the same. And here's the problem. Because it's not the same, we often take it upon ourselves to determine what the Christian life ought to be. Strangely, may I say conveniently, we sometimes, maybe often, try to fit the Christian life into the life that we want. <laughs> we pick and choose words. We, we, we take words that he said that we like and we kind of read those over and over and we, we fixate on those and we sometimes neglect others. Or we rely upon our own interpretations of God's word. We bring our own biases to God's word. May I just pause right here and recommend a great book. It's called Misreading Scripture Through Western Eyes by Randy Richards. Uh, he's a friend of my uh, wife's parents, and so I read the book, and let me tell you, it really opened my eyes to the culture and the time in which the Bible was written, and it exposed how we as Westerners, 2,000 years later, sometimes misinterpret or misread God's Word. So I recommend that, Misreading Scripture Through Western Eyes by Randy Richards. We might be tempted to think that Jesus' words don't carry the same weight today or the same meaning as they did then. But remaining in his words still means letting his words define us. It means letting his words sink deep down inside us, enabling us to live a kind of life that we would not be able to live otherwise. What does this Christ life look like for us today? It looks like this. As we let Christ live in and through us, our thoughts will be filled with his thoughts. Our speech will be colored by his speech. Our actions will be directed by his actions. Our attitude will reflect his attitude. We'll approach life as he did. We will honor God as he did. We'll love people as he loved them. You see, remaining in his word means a constant awareness of him and a deep longing to please him. Of course, we're not going to do it perfectly or as seamlessly as Jesus did, but we'll at least be moving in that direction. And in time, we'll see progress. As a Christian, you should be able to look at your life now and look at it a year ago and see a difference. Only then will we be counted as his true disciples. And that will continue to affect us. We'll believe what he believes. We'll want what he wants. And we'll live as he lived. Not as, obviously not as a, a first century Jewish rabbi with supernatural powers. But as 21st century men and women keeping his word and walking in his ways. And then comes the reward. Jesus said, if you continue in my word... You really are my disciples. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. 
Now we've come to the part we've been waiting for, truth and freedom. But truth about what? And what sort of freedom? Now, in order to answer those questions, I'm going to first tell you a lie. It's a very old lie. Perhaps almost every human believes it. It's a clever lie because it appeals to our sense of self-worth. It masquerades as the key to happiness and the path to self-fulfillment. This lie is often repeated as well-intentioned, a well-intentioned word of encouragement. The lie is this. You don't have a problem. You've heard that lie your entire life. You might have heard it this week. Because it comes in several forms. You're good enough just as you are. You don't have to change for anyone. Just believe in yourself. You do you. Now, the reason the world doesn't recognize that as a lie is because we here in the 21st century, we came after the lie was already in place. You see, the Bible tells us that um, this lie happened a very long time ago when our very first parents were living in the perfect world and they were approached by a creature, the Bible calls him Satan or the devil, and they were seduced by him. They were enticed to believe this lie and they committed a sin. And because of that sin, the entire world has, has gone off the rails, so to speak. Um, John, the author of this gospel, in his first epistle at the end, he says the entire world is under the influence of the evil one. And so that lie persists today. So if that is a lie, and I believe it is, the truth then is this. And I'm sorry to have to be the one to tell you, but it's, it is the truth. You have a problem. You aren't good enough just the way you are. You really do have to change. It's not enough to believe in yourself. You must believe in Christ. And I found that when I try to do me, that's really usually when I get into the most trouble. As John the Baptist said of Christ, he must increase, but I must decrease. As Paul put it, to live is Christ. And again, he said, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So as I look at the scripture and I look at the world and I hear the message of the world and I look at the message of scripture, I see that there's a conflict between the two. We live surrounded by this lie. And only in Christ will we know the truth. I began by saying I wanted to talk about the answer to our greatest need. Well, here it is. What we need most is to get back with God. That's the truth that Jesus is talking about here. And this is the way. It begins with the confession that we have a problem, a sin problem. You know who gets this right? People who are struggling with addiction and come to that point in their life where they realize they're in big trouble. Alcoholics Anonymous, the first thing they tell them is, you have a problem, and they have to admit it. As I've thought about that recently, I thought, you know what, we're all addicts. 
We're all addicted to sin in one way or another. We really do need to admit that we have a problem. But that's only the first part of the truth. Just as the lie implies that you don't, have, you don't need a savior, the truth demands that we do. The other part of the truth, the most important part is this, that Jesus is the only savior who can get us out of the trouble that we're in. He's the only one who can save us from these interesting times in which we live, which we've always lived. And he did it by taking our problem on to himself. The word of God says that he became sin and he took our place on the cross and he bore the wrath of God that we should bear. He settled the debt and it's only through him that we can find true freedom. See, true freedom doesn't come by believing in yourself enough, no matter what the pop stars tell us, or loving ourselves just as we are. It comes only from believing in Christ and giving ourselves over to the complete overhaul that only he can perform. I wonder how many of you are thinking that I'm being a bit extreme by calling out the lie. I know the world would think that I'm crazy or pointing to Jesus as the only way. Well, let me just say this. This is not my idea. It comes directly from the Lord himself. I want to read the rest of the passage. It's not going to be on the uh, slides. If you have your Bibles, open and read along with me or your device, or just sit and listen. And just listen to the conversation. I'm going to start from the beginning because there's a really important part I want you to get. He was saying to these, oh, I'm sorry, uh, I've lost my place. Oh, here. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you continue in my word, you really are my disciples. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. We are descendants of Abraham, they answered him. And we've never been enslaved to anyone. How can you say you will become free? You see, we don't have a problem. I guess they forgot all that time in Egypt and <laughs> Babylon. Jesus responded, I assure you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. A slave does not remain in a household forever, but a son does remain forever. Therefore, if the son sets you free, you really will be free. I know you are descendants of Abraham, but you are trying to kill me because my word is not welcome among you. I speak what I have seen in the presence of the Father. Therefore, you do what you have heard from your Father. Do you hear how the, how the story is starting to turn a bit? Our father's Abraham, they replied. If you were Abraham's children, Jesus told them, you would do what Abraham did. But, you, but now you are trying to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did not do this. You're doing what your father does. See, Jesus sees right through them. Remember, these were Jews who believed him. We weren't born of sexual immorality, they said. We have one father, God. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, because I came from God and I am here. For I didn't come on my own, but he sent me. Why don't you understand what I say? because you cannot listen to my word. You are of your father, the devil. And you wanna carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has not stood in the truth because there is no truth in him. 
When he tells a lie, he speaks from his own nature because he is a liar and the father of liars. Yet because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Who among you can convict me of sin? If I tell you the truth, why don't you believe me? The one who is from God listens to God's word. This is why you don't listen, because you're not from God. Wow. I've been reading this passage over and over and over for the last couple months. I find it tremendously encouraging, but also very alarming. I'm encouraged in it in that Jesus lays out exactly what it takes to be right with him. And by association with him, right with God. And here it is, as plainly as I can make it. Knowing and remaining in his word and walking in his ways is the only path to God. And entering this path begins with admitting that we have a problem and trusting Jesus as the only solution. And the result is freedom. Freedom from the destructive effects of sin. Freedom from the eternal consequences of sin. Freedom from the wrath of God that is going to be poured out upon this fallen world. Freedom to live as Christ intended the rest of our days on earth and then eternally with him in heaven. Man, that is some great news, is it not? But this passage is alarming because of the response of those people who were right there with him. I mean, they heard him speak this truth. He was offering it to them right then and there, and all they had to do was take it. They started out believing him, and if you read to the end of that chapter, you find out that they wanted to kill him. They could have had what he was offering, but they rejected him. Why? Because they believed the lie. They couldn't admit they have a problem. They couldn't accept Jesus as the solution. That's tough, isn't it? And I guarantee you're not going to hear that if all you're listening to is what the world is telling you. Well, in conclusion and by way of response, I want to ask you a simple question. How are you going to respond to what Jesus said? If you're already a Christian, let me encourage you to check yourself. Check your Christian life by what he said. What place does his word have in your life? Have you gotten kind of stale in it, kind of bored with it? Have you, have you fallen into the routine of five to ten minutes a day and thinking that's enough? Or do you really know it? And are you continuing it? Are you obeying it? Are you letting it shape your life? And what kind of disciple are you? Are you progressing in the way of Christ? What about truth? Just because you've been saved doesn't mean that you are immune to sin or, that, or you're immune to the seduction of the lie. Are you living in the true freedom of Christ? If you're not yet a Christian... Would you consider the offer that Jesus has made this morning? You don't have to know everything about the word of God. You'll never know everything there is to know about the word of God. But you'll know more in time. You don't have to be a super disciple. The disciple's journey is a lifelong journey. 
But you do have to confess that you have a problem. And you do have to trust that Jesus is the solution. But you don't have to do it alone. That's what the church is for. That's what this church is for. This church is here to help you take that first step and then the next step and the next step and to walk with you on this journey. If you're interested in this, if you're ready to receive this offer of freedom or if you just want to talk about it, I know there are a lot of people in this room that would love to. I would love to meet with you right after this service if that's what you want to do. So I'm going to pray, and as the band comes up um, to bring us to a close, I want you to just consider what Jesus has said and how you would respond today. Heavenly Father, we thank you that the words of our Lord have been recorded and preserved for us and that in them we find the way to true freedom. Help us to see that we live in a world that is lying to us trying to convince us that we don't need a savior. We do. So if there are any here in this room or watching online that, that have not, not made a commitment to you, I pray, Lord, that you would begin to, to reveal yourself in new and exciting ways to them. I pray that you would arrange some kind of a conversation between them and another of your children that they might know you. I pray that Christians that are in this room and watching, that they will maybe take a second look at their own life, check it against Jesus' word, and allow you to make any adjustments necessary. So as we sing this song, Lord, we sing it to you. Work in our hearts. In the name of Christ Jesus, amen.